This season of Black and White is brought to you by Flatiron Wealth Management. Led by my good friend Andrew Shepard, Flatiron Wealth Management is an independent wealth management firm that is committed to building generational wealth for their clients. By constantly optimizing and diversifying its investment strategies, Flatiron helps you influence the economic factors that you can and to prepare for the ones you can't. Visit flatironwealth.com for more information. Link in the podcast description. Welcome back to Black and White, a rallying place where we come together to learn and hold everyone gently to account. A podcast for the ally in all of us. I'm your host, Stephen Dorsey. Black and White is recorded in Toronto, Canada on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. My guest today is Ross Cadastre, founder and CEO of Innovative Talent Solutions, a Canadian recruitment services agency based here in Toronto, serving Canada, most of North America, and founder and CEO of Lendu, a nearshore knowledge process outsourcing operation located in St. Lucia. I first connected with Ross in 2020 when I engaged with the Black Business Professional Association, one of Canada's leading nonprofit organizations that addresses equity and builds programming to support Black-owned businesses across Canada, a frontline organization making an impact and where Ross now currently serves as board president. In 2017, Ross was recognized at the Black Business Awards and inducted into the Black Canadian National Wall of Role Models. And more recently, Ross was recognized as one of Canada's top 100 professionals. Ross immigrated to Canada from St. Lucia in 1998, a place where he still has deep connections and where he manages several businesses and has been a leading contributor in the Black community for more than 25 years. I've been looking forward to reconnecting with him to chat about a wide range of topics we touched on over the years. Okay, so that was a big long list of, of things this man is doing, but I'm super impressed by who he is. And he's basically been modeling success his entire career and supporting others to do the same. As an entrepreneur, as a mentor, as a community leader, as professional role providing direction to the Black Business Professional Association. So let's get to it. Ross, welcome to Black and White. Thanks. Thanks, Stephen. Um, you know, as I listen to you speak about those words on paper, they're, they're just that. And if I were to think about my greatest accomplishment, were, were those would be my beautiful wife and my three excellent excellent kids so amen um, these these that's uh, the driving force for doing what we do as black men in the community uh, building generational wealth for our families and um, being able to fight through the challenges uh, to get to success uh, it's nice to hear that um, so Canada has a rich tradition of immigration uh, over the centuries from Europe 
from Africa, from Latin America, uh, from the United States, um, but also a rich tradition from the Caribbean. So many Black Canadians have Jamaican roots, uh, roots from St. Lucia. Can you tell us a little bit more about you know what brought you to Canada all these decades ago? And uh, what was that like in terms of uh, the difference from coming from a Caribbean nation that has, uh, I would assume, predominantly black and brown and people of color to Canada, where now you were really a visible minority? Like most um, or like a few of my my friends, I first came to Canada, uh, first left St. Lucia for school and uh, came to Canada um, uh, for as a as a as a for university and at first um i decided um that i wanted to do my grade 13s um for those of you who are young enough to um, know about the grade 13 year um so i i went to high school uh for for about one one semester and then from there went to uh attended seneca college and then went went to ryerson and finished up at ryerson um that was my first my first entry into into the country. That was my first um, experience with a lot of different things because here I am, um, a, a black kid from a small island, all alone. Um, when I entered the country, no friends. My parents weren't with me. Didn't have um, that day to day guidance, and I had to kind of navigate through all the challenges that um, that a person. Um, even more so a person of color would have to go through. Um, you know, we went through, I, I, I went through racism um, as a, as, and not even knowing what I was going through at that point, because I came from a small island where the guy who sat next to me uh, didn't look like me, but he was just as, or even more solution than me, uh, because he was this white kid. Uh, we used to call him white boy. And it, it, it was just our nickname for him, just because he was lighter than all of us. But he would go to the farms, he would go carry the bananas, he would do all of this stuff that I never even did. He was very, very, he was part of us. So so when I think about it, the island, you know, the um, colors didn't exist. There was a class structure, yes, but from a, from, from a, a, a skin color standpoint, we were all we're all the same. So coming to Canada as a as a as a high schooler and and going through, I went through um, very very interesting time. Um, completed school, went back to Saint Lucia, and then wanted to wanted to officially migrate back to the country because I found Saint Lucia, I found Canada to um, to have some of the things that I wanted my kids to have access to, um, and it's simple things like. The four seasons. I quite enjoyed the change in seasons. Um, you know, um, being able to take your kids to the park at that time on the island, the, these facilities were not available. So some of the experiences that I had, I wanted to ensure that my kids, um, uh, as I started with kids. So now you've done your school, you've gone back, you're saying to your family, we've got to move back to Canada, there's opportunity, we can have a different life, maybe a better life. And so what finally brings you here and what do you decide to do to take care of yourself and your family? So, yeah, so I made the decision uh, to move to Canada. I said to my fiance, now wife, I said, listen, I'm coming to Canada and pack all my stuff and I'm going to give myself three weeks. And if I get a job, I will stay. If I don't get a job, I come back. I was um, lucky enough to land 
a job um, in recruiting an industry that I never, never even knew existed. Um, I, I always say, I always jokingly saying that uh, say to people that I didn't even know how to spell recruit when I started <laughs> in the industry. <laughs> but but you know I landed I landed in there and my boss said to me and it was it should have been assigned then but my boss then boss said to me hey I'm gonna give you a job and I'm not gonna charge you for the training that we'll give you so you can't charge us for coming to work. <laughs> So, so I landed. Did, did you the, did you forget to omit that to your fiance that it was an unpaid job? <laughs> well, I had to I had to get a, a part time job to pay the bills. But the the, the reality is, it was a hundred percent commission job. And within um, three four weeks, I made my first placement. And then um, they realized that they probably had a superstar in the making. They started offering me all kinds of money to stay and not to leave and that sort of thing. Of course, of course. So now you're in Canada, your family's uh, come here with you. Since that time, you know, you got your training in recruitment, but at some point you became, you know, what I would characterize as a serial entrepreneur. So how do you go from getting into an industry you knew nothing about to becoming an all-star to then kind of parlaying that into multiple business, not just in Canada, but also in St. Lucia? Entrepreneurship has always been a part of me of who I am, what I see, what, I, what I've been exposed to. Um, my dad, um, St. Lucian, um, grew up in abject poverty on the island. Couldn't go to school because his mother couldn't afford a dollar a day for his room and board. So at the age of 14, he walked about an hour each way to work at a distillery. But he persevered and he became one of the most accomplished and one of the most known St. Lucians on the island. He himself was an entrepreneur. He started in the insurance business and he bought the company that he worked for, um, became one of the one of the first, if not the first local person to own an insurance company. Then he went into the hotel business and the rest is history. So he's a number of business. So growing up, I, I always had that, that entrepreneurial spirit had always been part of what we did. I remember um, saying to, to, to someone, after school every day, we had a business called Mother Care, which sold maternity clothes and had a toy section. I was responsible for the toy section. And you would appreciate as a, as a kid going to high school, we were in an all-boys high school. There was an all-girls high school a little ways away. And after school, we'd go to the ice cream parlor where we'd meet <laughs> the girls. I couldn't do that because I had to go man my, my, my toy section. And, but, but what that did at the time, of course I hated it because I wanted to be one of the cool guys at the ice cream parlor, but it taught me how to, how to run a business, how to be accountable for my, my stock, my products, my sales, and looking at my sales. Um, I remember my first, my first business was um, at high school where I, um, my dad was big into v videos, VHSs, for those who can remember VHS, the old VHS. Yeah, and he had, yeah. thousands, he had thousands of those movies. And I used to take them because he had so many of them. I used to take them and re-rent them to friends at school. And that's, <laughs> that was my first business, video rental. So, you know, and so I came to school here in Canada, went to university. I sold computers. I've always looked for an opportunity not to be an employee. Right, um, and that's because of where of where I came from. Unfortunately, um, my father lost all his businesses, everything. He went through a bad a bad time in the business and lost everything. And I think when that happened, it had a little bit of a psychological 
effect on me in that I was like, okay, is entrepreneurship the right way to go, right? Mm -hmm. What if you fail, right? Because the person that you looked up most in business has just failed. So what if you fail? And, and that's what kept me, I believe, in corporate Canada for as long as I did. Okay. What was very interesting is, you know, one day I woke up and I said, I was just tired of growing a business and making profit for people who didn't know I existed. And that's when I made the decision full-on entrepreneurship. Interesting, interesting. I had uh, Wes Hall on the podcast last season. He's got quite an incredible story of growing up in a tin shack with, you know, I believe 10 or 11 other siblings and, you know, working in a chicken farm. And what did he call, he called himself the the chicken undertaker. (laughs) You know, know. and as we know, you know, he's one of the most successful black entrepreneurs in, in North America. Uh, he was talking about going to the bank the first time and trying to get a $100,000 loan to start his business, which is now a multi-billion dollar company. And time after time, in terms of the system being denied by the banking system, even he had collateral on a home. Can you share some of your experiences and challenges about being a black entrepreneur in Canada over the decades and with the, the Black Business Professional Association? But tell me about your personal experience, you know, being an entrepreneur and trying to make your way. You know, um, I've heard Wes's story, and it's um, you know, it's it's remarkable that um, he has achieved the level of success that he has, and he is certainly a role model to the black community, one, but but to anybody who really wants to kind of identify a success story. You know, in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, I started a company called Healthcare Staffing Solutions, I believe, and we were we were going to take over the healthcare industry by storm. Absolutely, <laughs> and yeah, and, and that was the vision. Um, and you know, we started off very small, and we went to numerous banks for loans just to help us. We had the volume of business, we had the right plan. Um, you know, when I look at it now with the experience that I have now, I have worked for global organizations, some of our budgets and some of our plans and the, the business were, were actually more achievable than some of the other ones that I've seen in my life. But uh, for some reason, every door closed. And at the time, when, you, when you're so focused um, on making the business work, you don't look at things as, you know, oh, I don't. Look at things as, okay, this person just denied me a loan because of the color of my skin. My attitude was, oh, well, on to the next. Oh, well, on to the next. But as I reflect, okay, as I reflect, I do know that the reason why we were turned down had nothing to do with the success of our plan, had nothing to do with being able to back it up, had more to do with uh, that person making a judgment call by looking at me and saying, I don't care what the paper tells me. This guy is not going to be successful. And that comes from the color of his skin. Uh, the first thing I wanted to address to, that you talked on was that in the moment, you're just focused on being a business person, yeah. right? And I know this as an entrepreneur myself. I'm not going, oh, that person just said no because I'm a black person. If you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to achieve and you're a hard worker, your mind doesn't think that way. It's just another obstacle that you need to figure out how to get around and you're not perhaps putting it into context. The other thing is we know right. that the difference between individual racism and systemic racism is very clear. If someone stops you on the street and calls you a name because of the color of your skin, you get it, 
right? Yeah. That person is a racist, doesn't like you, right? Systemic racism is a lagging indicator. It's something that you prove and show through data analysis, right? So, uh, which is actually quite interesting. It's months and years down the road where you look back and you look at the data and go, oh, that's interesting. You, you're not assessing that in the moment, but when you look back, go, oh, I wonder why that is. And then in terms of advantage, I've, you know, the word white privilege, and I, I've changed it for, in my term, I use white advantage. And this is something I've tried to explain to uh, white people, my white friends and people I know in my community, of, of the advantage that they have in many areas of our society simply because of the color of their skin. And you've just described one. Most, you know, people would go to a bank and go, okay, as you said, I have a good business plan. I have a track record. I have corporate history, right? I've mm -hmm. worked in corporations and I've showed success. My plan is solid, right? Yes, every business plan has an innate risk attached to it. The one thing is white people don't go to the bank and go, wow, I hope they don't deny me because of the color of my skin. Right. Other thing that you touched on earlier was wanting to come to Canada and wanting to work and make money and create generational wealth for your family. Well, one of the issues that we've talked about on this show is the wealth gap that exists in our society between black people and white people in North America. And, and, and this is the most shocking part, is that it's so large that if nothing changed as of today, terms of the systems and the approach. And we know things are changing, but if nothing had changed, let's call it pre-George Floyd, maybe before, right? Uh, it would take 238 years to close that wealth gap between black people and white people. So this is part of the conversations that I'm having with business people and entrepreneurs like yourself about how we make that change, because you're never going to get to equality if you don't figure out the elements of eliminating that disadvantage and creating some equity measures to get to the equality. So your personal story as an entrepreneur, I think is just highlights exactly what we're talking about because you're just trying to get started. It's hard enough to be an entrepreneur and start a business, but yeah. you know, when you're already on a, a, on your back foot, it's very difficult. This is also tied to a story of perseverance and resilience and pushing on through. So tell me about figuring out how to fund your businesses and building them in, you know, challenging circumstances, not just as an entrepreneur, but as a black man in a country where uh, you do have, there are some systemic realities of disadvantage, but still making your way. So that business, Healthcare Staffing Solutions, actually, we decided to shut it down because we couldn't build it any bigger without the funds. So I went back into corporate with Canada, worked for a few global companies, but that wasn't enough. I made the decision to be all in, quit my job, build a company that I could be proud of. I founded uh, Innovative Talent Solutions in 2017. And what I sought to do is take out everything that I didn't like about the recruitment industry and keep the stuff that I liked about it and build a I don't call it a company, build a community of people. So everybody we hire is part of this community that we're trying to grow. And once bitten, twice shy, I went into business without without even having to have a conversation with the bank except to open an account. And um, we started the business with the know-how and very, very little funding. And we managed to, in the last five years, to, to have um, a few different brands uh, we have the St. Lucia operation 
running as well. And we're growing what I think is a very respectful business in the Canadian landscape. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, well, I know of your businesses. I know you've done quite well and, and you should be proud of that. And it's a great story of immigration. You know, our, the immigrants that come to Canada from all over the world. Uh, you know, I looked at the stats and I, I, I touch about it in my book, which is, you know, they uh, they become very successful very quickly, uh, you know, because there's always, you know, there's the, the echo out there of immigrants taking people's jobs, but they actually create jobs and, and so on and so forth. So they're actually, it's a, it's a win-win for this country, immigration. And you're a perfect example of, of a success story. One of the things I also spoke with Wes Hall about was representation, you know, which is a big focus right now, representation of Black people in leadership positions. Uh, on boards. And I know West Hall has uh, initiated the, the Black North Initiative, which has been going on now, I think, since 2020. And uh, I wrote an op-ed that, was called, that I called, you know, corporations need to go deeper, right? And one of the things is like, you can't just create Black leaders, <laughs> you know, like, where are they? Let's just get them in here. You have to, I should say, you, you have to develop them, right? You have to go deeper and go into the communities and start building this pipeline of diversity, Right. Black people, people of color, indigenous people, you know, diversity also of, of women. We know that they're still having challenges, people with disabilities. So so, you know, um, that's one of the things that the uh, Black Business Professional Association, which are now president, is really, really focused on. And when we come back from the break, I really want to start digging into the work that you're doing uh, now Canada wide. It started here in Toronto and uh, about how you're building that pool of talent, how you're training the next generation, how you're starting to be able to engage the community and create this pool that we can now then put through this pipeline of opportunity in corporate Canada uh, and reach some success. So after the break, I'm gonna come back with Ross and we're gonna talk about that and other topics. So stay tuned. Hey everyone, if you've listened to season one of Black and White, you know that my amazing guests and I have often discussed the wealth gap issue that persists between the BIPOC and non-BIPOC communities. Disadvantage of opportunity caused in part by wealth inequalities is something I know firsthand as a black man who started out in life from challenging circumstances. More than 10 years ago, I turned to Andrew Shepard and his team at Flatiron Wealth Management to help me set a course for a better financial future for my family by setting tangible financial goals and putting in place informed investment strategies. At that time, Andrew and his team reviewed my needs, which included long-term planning for the eventual retirement I envisioned, and making sure we had a safety net in place in case things went wrong along the way. Most importantly, Andrew heard me when I told him that priority number one was to secure a better future for my kids, one which would see them have as many opportunities as possible. Through a collaborative process, the Flatiron team recommended a strategy for my kids, which included a savings plan, partly anchored in a governmental educational savings program, combined with a participatory insurance product that would allow my kids to have millions of dollars of life insurance coverage, paid for in 20 years at the lowest cost possible. Surprising to me, this plan would also enable my kids to borrow from the insurance policy to pay for college, to put a down payment on a house, or to invest in a business. Key foundational pillars to building generational wealth. It's truly been an amazing 10 years with Flatiron. I've seen the direct benefit of their financial management services, positive forward momentum realized year after year. If you're in need of solid financial management advisory services, give Andrew and his team at Flatiron a call. 
You'll be happy you did. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Okay, welcome back to Black and White. I'm Stephen Dorsey, your host. I'm here with Ross Cadastre, my guest today. We're having a great conversation. So one of the many roles that Ross holds, he's now uh, recently, uh, in the last year, the new uh, board president of the Black Business Professional Association, which is arguably one of the frontline organizations that's working with Black community in Canada to uh, coach and mentor uh, Black entrepreneurs, Black business people, and get them uh, fully loaded, if you will, in regards to understandings about uh, different aspects of business they may not be as uh, versed in so that they are well-equipped for success. So Ross, tell me a little bit about the Black Business Professional Association, how it got started and why it got started. The BBPA this year is enjoying um, 40 years of service to the Black business community. It was started by a group of business leaders led by Denham Jolly. And you may know De- Denham Jolly. He's uh, an entrepreneur himself. He founded the first Black-owned and, uh, radio station, Flow 93.5. One of the big stations here. Yeah. And even that was a fight to get Black music on there. So he's a fighter, Denham Jolly is is um, to this day a fighter for our community. But, you know, the purpose of the BBPA was to advocate for and create equity for Black entrepreneurs throughout Canada. There are two staples um, in the last 40 years um, for the BBPA that have remained. One is the Harry Jerome Awards, which celebrates Black excellence. It's kind of like the Grammys and um, for, for the Black community. And the second one is our scholarship program, where we give scholarships to young students um, going to university to help them. And I think in spite of the 22 other programs, which I can touch on f- a few of them, those two are what I call the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. Because in order for us to highlight black excellence, there must be a start. Okay. And that start usually comes from what they do at school to be that accountant, um, to be that business leader, that they can get that business leader award. And we've had quite a few. Um, students who got the scholarship and were either nominated or won a Harry Jerome Award. To me, that's what we're here for. That's a great full circle story when that happens, right? This is what we're talking about. Yeah, because we know, Stephen, that the challenges that the Black community has is access. It's all around access. It's access to capital, access to information, um, access to the training and the networks. And that's what the BBPA seeks to do through our programming. So um, we launched about a year ago a signature program called BAIDS, Business Advisory Implementation Development Services. And what that does, it's a wraparound service for Black entrepreneurs. As you would well know that the um, federal government launched a $290 million program, which included a loan program, which is administered by Black organization. So that's FACE. 
And then um, they also launched an ecosystem which included um, partners like the BBPA to be able to provide support services to Black-owned businesses. BAIDS was our response to uh, providing those services. So let, let me bridge this a little bit. So the global reckoning, the George Floyd moment, not that the, the Black Lives Matter movement had been really in force for almost a decade. And then we get to George Floyd and the conversation changes, not just in Canada, but globally. When I reached out to you and Nadine Spencer, what is her title now? CEO. She's the, She's CEO. the CEO. Boss lady. The boss lady. Uh, the boss lady of the BBPA, who's amazing. Uh, brand marketing uh, expert here in Canada. I was working for a client, as you can imagine, they turned to me to get their diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, to just get started, really. They had nothing on the books. And so we actually did our own, we did some work first to understand our values and what it is that we wanted to do as an organization. Uh, and then we looked for organization we wanted to support in the black community that could actually, that were already making an impact. And that's uh, what took me to the BBPA. And what I really liked about the organization was that real programs that were making an impact, right? You had mentorship programs, you had internship programs. I think actually one of the programs was called Boss Woman, and it was to empower black women. And what I liked about your organization was that you were prepared for that intake, right? Before George Floyd, for the most part, you know, you're raising money, you're getting support from organizations, from corporations, from individuals, you're getting volunteers. And then post George Floyd, now there's like, there's a change, right? Now we have federal government of Canada infusing, deciding to infuse hundreds of millions of dollars into the BIPOC community. Uh, and some of this flows from organizations right back down to the BBVA. And now you're, you're in a different position, I might assume, and I want to hear from you, where you have more resources to facilitate, to accelerate, to motivate, and to inspire. So tell me about the difference that you felt through that moment. Well, so there are a couple of things. And, um, you know, that, that um, few minutes, that knee on the neck, opened a lot of possibilities. It was a time where corporate North America says, and even globally, um, in some cases said, we've got to do something. And governments around the world said we've got to do something, and and Canada's response was that, um, among other things, was that two hundred and ninety million dollar fund. Um, we found a, a lot of corporates like what you've just discussed reevaluating internally what they can do, what they can do from a standpoint to make a more equitable environment, but also to support the cause either through. Um, some sort of donations or even getting involved. Like you rightfully said, we, we had a number of organizations say, we want to get our hands dirty too, right? We want to help the movement. And I think the other thing is COVID. What COVID allowed us to do almost overnight was to make all of our programs virtual. And what that meant is that if you were a Black business in uh, Nunavut, or a black business in some other part of Canada, BC, you can dial in and take full advantage of all the programming that we had to offer. So that was for, for us, there, there was a lot of negative around, of course, the George Floyd, of course, COVID, but that was one positive that we took. We were able to impact more businesses quickly throughout Canada. And at the same time, getting a lot of people putting their hand up saying, 
we would like to support what you're doing in any way that we can. Amazing, amazing. I guess from my perspective, you know, I'm in Toronto, we're in Toronto, right? Where there arguably it's aside from places like in Nova Scotia and other places, but the, the black population of, of Toronto is it's significant. So we have a significant community. It's very diverse, you know, from Caribbean to African, uh, you know, from all over the world. Um, and uh, there's certain pockets. If, if you haven't been to Toronto, Toronto is kind of a, a place of neighborhoods, right? You go, oh, you can go to the Portuguese neighborhood. Everyone mixes, but you can go to, everyone's made their little village. If you're at Little Italy, Little Portugal, Danforth is Greek, and we have a little Jamaica. So how are you seeing the momentum of the work, the BBPA over the 40 years and, and in recent years in starting to transform some of these communities, starting with small business operators and entrepreneurs who are succeeding and bring that value back into their community. Are we seeing that traction? Yes, yes. You know, I have to say, there's still a lot of work to be done. We have only scratched the surface, uh, okay? Uh, when we look at the government funding, if you think about it, $290 million is not a lot of money. It sounds like a big amount of money, but when we look at all the challenges that the businesses have in order to get them to a point where they can even compete in a lot of areas, we're just scratching the surface. I must say that while more funds are needed, we're, we're grateful for the funding and the support that we have received. Through our programming over the last year, we uh, last few years actually, we've seen a lot of success stories. One in particular, young this entrepreneur, female entrepreneur came into our program. She had been doing sauces for a long time. And when she came into the program, she didn't have a business plan. We helped her get her business plan. We helped her with her marketing. We helped her with her pitch. Um, she pitched to Loblaw. And now she's on the shelves. Amazing. What, what's it called? Um, it's called Tikaila. It's a bit French. Um, and, you know, it is, it's amazing. And she's in, I think, 130 stores. But that's a great story. We also have stories of a gentleman with an idea and the will starting his business and having to live in his car, right? And now he's fully producing his products. They're on the shelves, all because we helped him with the infrastructure. We helped him build his plan, his marketing, and his execution. These are the stories that are important to where we go. And there are tons of other stories like that um, that we can point out to. I mean, I spoke about the scholarship program. We can point to a number of people that receive BBPA scholarships, either to do business or medical field or accounting, and now have achieved running their own practices and and having it. That's the story. And this is where transformation begins, right? We talked earlier about the wealth gap and wealth generation. The restrictions on the ability to generate generational wealth has many effects. And one of those is that, for example, the majority of the Black community hasn't owned as much real estate or property over the generations that's accumulated value and be able to borrow from it to send your kids to school or to start a business, right? So these are domino effects and this is the cycle. This is where we need to make a change. Now we're talking about, you know, the hundreds of millions that the federal government's put in. Now, as you know, there's been a lot of talk on uh, south of the border here in Canada about some type of equity measures to try to minimize that gap. And some have talked about reparations 
you know, I talked about, I talk about the need to do something and maybe part of that is a fund. Uh, we're seeing some funding, but I'm talking real money here, yeah. billions of dollars, right? And, uh, and I've heard people say, well, you know, I'm not big on reparations, but we've done it before. We've done reparations before. So where do you sit on all that, uh, on, on that topic? As my viewpoint on, on this, without an injection of cash into some fund, it will be very difficult to even the paying field. That's the, that's the thing that we've got to recognize. When we give, the BBPA gives a scholarship, up until 2022 this year, there is a large probability that this student getting the scholarship will be the first in his family. Has the effect on that. It's not just having an education, but it's the access to networks. So if you think about it, if you didn't go to university, okay, and you didn't meet and have the relationships with people who in the future would be leaders, then when your kid's looking for a job, you can't say, I know Johnny, give Johnny a call. Johnny will, will have a conversation, at least have a chat with my kid. We don't have that. So we're always, it's always going to be, uh, we're always going to be not having the, the networks, not having the training. So it's very important for us to, to level the playing field is to ensure that at every stage of that growth, of, of the community, that we are ensuring that these accesses are being available for those people. I sat a few years ago at work and my daughter was, was looking for a job. And, you know, I, I helped her get a part-time job. But my boss, he just, you know, for his son to get a job, he just called the law firm and said, hey, my son's looking for a job. He started Monday. I'm not holding that against. Of course not, yes. But, but that's the reality that a lot of black people go through. And, you know, I want to touch on a point that you, you, you mentioned. Um, you know, you mentioned about home ownership and having been able to kind of pull out that equity to start a business and that sort of thing. That is, you know, if I look at the journey of an entrepreneur, and we do a lot of work, especially in um, Little Jamaica. And as you know, Little Jamaica used to be um, one of the most populated um, areas for black businesses. Okay, and the businesses come mainly in three areas. They're the beauty salons, uh, fashion, and the restaurants. Those are the main areas. And a lot of these businesses started as a result of, I no longer want to work for anybody. I'm going to start my business. What business am I going to start? And then they think through it. Well, my friend Peter tells me I'm a good chef, so I'm going to start a restaurant. And they start the restaurant. They go to the bank, and the bank says, no, we can't fund it, Right. For whatever reason, we can't fund it, okay? They don't own a house. There's no collateral. So they go in and they start. How do they start the business? With friends and family, as much as possible, lines of credit or, or credit cards, and then they start their business. The business starts to do well. Now they need to fund the growth of the business. They mm -hmm. go back to the bank and the bank says, your credit cards, are, your ratios are off. Your credit cards are too high. <laughs> you, you, so what are these businesses supposed to do, right? So they stay at the same level and they don't have this opportunity to grow. And, and in a long-winded way, I think with the proper training, the proper financial literacy um, access, and you know some of the stuff that is happening with some other groups in the city providing um, access to housing, all of that 
not just what the BBP is doing for businesses, but all of those pieces need to come together to be part of the bigger picture to move our community forward. Go back to something you said right at the beginning about, you know, you barely knew how to uh, spell the word recruitment. But, you know, I I talk about also, you know, you talked about building networks and and all of that. And um, careers that they are not modeled in their community exist, right? Beyond restaurants and fashion and beauty salons, right? Where their parents aren't perhaps accountants or work in the film industry or, right? So... Uh, that's where that's where other work needs to happen is the exposure of those uh, vision opportunities for careers, right? That need to be modeled uh, where people go, I never even heard that, you know, for me, it was the film industry. I was passionate about film and television as a young kid. No one ever told me there was actually a career to be had in that in- or that there was an industry. I just figured yeah. it was on a screen. I didn't know that you could be someone that wrote a film or directed a film or financed a film, or created a set on a film, or whatever, right? So this is the other part that needs to happen. We need to broaden the the vision that is possible for communities who have traditionally been marginalized, and I think that's part of the work that you're doing. So Ross, we, we've covered a lot of ground. Let me ask you this. What are you most excited about today in terms of, you now we've talked about the programs at the BPA, what you're doing in your personal professional life, in terms of this, what's happening in the Black communities in Canada, uh, uh, in North America, what gets you very excited about the times we're in today? You know, um, when I when I took the seat as um, board president for the BBP, my vision was no business gets left behind, whether you sit in um, Nunavut or in uh, Newfoundland or anywhere else in the country, the BBP is here to serve you. And we have a very hardworking team and their mission and their goal in life is to ensure that no business gets left behind. And what excites me as a result of that is that we are at a stage right now where we have great opportunity to impact that. Some of the conversations that our CEO is having with a number of organizations are very promising to lead to that end goal, ensuring that Black businesses have the tools, not just the money, but the tools that they need for them to be successful. So that's pretty, pretty um, exciting. Amazing. Well, I think it's a great place to end. Thank you, Ross, for joining me today. Uh, I knew we'd have a great conversation. And uh, and thank you for all the work that you and, and the dean are do- and the team at the BBPA are doing, and also all of your entrepreneurial efforts, uh, which are really making impact uh, broadly in the community. So uh, well done, my friend, and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure being here. I look forward to more more conversations like this. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Black and White. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and take the time to read our show. Black and White is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to my producer, sound designer and engineer, Noah Fouts, and our executive producer, David Allen Moss. A reminder that my book, Black and White, an intimate multicultural perspective on white advantage and the past to change is available at your favorite bookstores across the U.S. and Canada and online at Amazon and Indigo Chapters. I'm Stephen Dorsey, reminding all of us that we can all be better, do better, so that eventually we can all live better together.
Ever heard of Stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it.